Welcome to Shift, a college admissions podcast for a changing world. I'm Tyler, founder of Achievable, and we have an affordable ACT course that includes everything you need to ace your ACT exam. This is a full textbook, tons of ACT questions backed by our memory enhancing algorithm, and full-length practice exams. You can try it out for free at achievable.me, and if you like it, the code podcast gets you 10% off at checkout. Also, if you have a question or topic you'd like us to discuss in a future episode, please contact me at tyler at achievable.me with the subject line podcast topic. Now let's get started. So today we've got Alan Shepton with us. And Alan, if you could just give a little bit about your background. Sure. I'm Alan Shepton. My company is Shepton Tutoring Group. We have offices in Chappaqua, New York and New York City. We do test prep, academic support, and college planning for high school students and for graduate students. Nice. Great. Well, really glad to have you on the show. How long have you been in the, in the test prep world? I started about 30 years ago when I was still in the professional world. So I was doing this part-time. And mm-hmm. about 17 years ago, I transitioned from doing my professional job, I'm an actuary by trade, into test prep and academic support. I created my business and we went, we went live in 2007. Nice. Yeah, so you've been you've been around for a while, and you've probably seen. I think two thousand seven was a couple of years after the they transitioned to the SAT with a twenty four hundred score. Yep. That was the one that I took, yep. and they at some point moved it back. Thank God, because mm-hmm. the twenty four hundred score I don't know if anyone really liked, no. um, or at least I don't know. That was it was my friends. It was new um, at the time, but yeah, the topic of today's uh, call here is. The place that the SAT has in the world of college admissions in the 2020s and what is it its effects on the admission process, right? And I, I love this topic. I'm really glad you brought it here with us. And I feel like you've seen a couple of these transitions, right? And now we've got the new transition to the digital SAT. Right. And in the middle of all that, there's kind of like the test optional movement. And so there's a lot going on. Where do you want to start with? Well, first, I want to explain the difference between test blind and test optional. Okay. Mm-hmm. Test blind means that a school will not even look at your SAT or ACT exam scores, even if you do submit them. So they won't consider them. They won't be part of your application. They're just kind of going to cyberspace, so to speak. Test optional means that you have the option of turning in an SAT or ACT score. If mm-hmm. you don't send it in, they can't use that data against you. If you do use it, if you do send it, it'll be part of your pack, part of your admission package. Mm-hmm. Right. So given that, right, I mean, I feel like test optional is a lot more common than test blind nowadays. Yeah, there are very few schools that do test blind. But what's interesting is if you look at the new admission officers at the Ivies, and the Ivies tend to lead the way in a lot of admission parameters. Mm -hmm. Two of them came from schools that are traditionally test optional. So Whitney Sewell is the new director of admissions for the University of Pennsylvania. She came Mm -hmm. from Bowdoin, which is one of the first schools to go test optional over 50 years ago. Jonathan Burdick is the director of admissions for Cornell. He came from the University of Rochester. He too had his school go test optional before 2020, before the pandemic. Um, Harvard already came out and said that we will that they will continue to be test optional through through the class of 2030. So that's four more 
admission classes. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens with this test optional. The only school that's gone the other direction is MIT. This mm -hmm. year, they required either an SAT or an ACT. The reason they said is twofold. First of all, they said that they felt that that piece of information provide important insight into the students and their fit in terms of the class. And the second thing they said, which I th thought was kind of interesting, was that they like to use the SAT because what they find is they purchase lists from the college board and sometimes they'll get names of students that might not necessarily think of applying to MIT. So they're using it as a marketing tool and also as an admissibility tool. Hmm. So wait, they're getting names of students and they're literally reaching out to them and being like, yeah. you should apply here? Yeah, absolutely. So the College Board sells lists of names of students to colleges and universities. So the colleges can say, this is what we're looking for. It could be a demographic. It could be a geography. It could be a certain score level. It could be a certain academic interest. They'll tick all the marks that they want. probably be an intersection. Right, some sort of intersection. intersection of those things. Right. And... MIT or whatever school will purchase that list and they'll send information to students say, we would like to introduce you to our school and create a relationship. And interestingly enough, over 40 years ago, I was introduced to my alma mater through the student search service. So I'm a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, really knew nothing about the school. And that's how they found me. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I, I, for some reason, I just have never heard of that before, but <laughs> I think it's been around for a minute. Right. So no, because probably when you're in high school, or even years before you get mail from school, you say, where did they get my name from? And that was from the college board. They sold your list to, they sold a list to the, your school, to you. Mm. Got it. Okay. Well, cool. So then where does the SAT fit into all this? Right. I think that's kind of the that that's the interesting part, maybe. Um, and we're I'm happy to include the ACT as part of this or not, right. if you just want to stay focused on the SAT. But it is interesting. The SAT and ACT, I think, now. they're interchangeable. Every school will consider yeah. one or the other as an equivalent. So they're not going to say we really want the SAT over the ACT. There are a few schools in the Midwest that do want the ACT. They're they're regional schools. Some of them are biblical colleges, some of them are small liberal arts schools that really have a geographic reach in a very small geography. And mm -hmm. those students tend to take the ACT anyway because they're part of the test that students, that schools or school districts use in order for a student to graduate from high school. So that's a whole different story. But with respect right. to the SAT and ACT, the movement really started in 2020 in response to the pandemic. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of test centers were closed. A lot of students had, were, had limited accessibility to taking exams. So the school said smart, wisely, we're not going to require testing. If you have it, great. If you don't have it, don't worry about it. Uh, and it was telling to see what was going to happen going forward. It stayed that way for two years. It stayed that way even for three years. And a few interesting phenomena occurred. The first thing was more students were applying to more selective schools. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, we noticed that Colgate University, which is a highly selective school in New York State, had a doubling in their applications in 2020. Huh. All the Ivies had dramatic double-digit increases in their applications, too, because students felt the combination of the common application, which is very easy, fill it out. It's all digital. Mm -hmm. 
it's easy if you have $75 to file for an application, great. And they said, you know something? I know I have the grades. I think I'm a really strong student. Let me throw my hat in the ring. Let's see what happens. Uh, so again, the number of applications went up, the selectivity increased. And what we saw was the acceptance rates for some of the top 25 universities plummeted in many respects. Um, right, which and they're happy about in a weird way because it improves well, their ranking. It shows selectivity, right. And yeah. it shows rankings in the U.S. News and World Report. And what's interesting also is if you notice, uh, U.S. News and World Report also ranks law schools and several of the top law schools have decided to pull out of the rankings in, in U.S. News. So I think Yale, Stanford, and I believe Harvard all pulled out of the rankings for U.S. News law schools. So it'll be interesting to see uh -huh. if these rankings continue to be as important as they've been in the past. Huh. What do you think so, made them do that? I think the frenzy and mm -hmm. the selectivity. I think it's it's can be kind of intimidating to see, oh, the average SAT score is between 1550 and 1600 for X school. Should I apply to this school? Hmm, maybe I shouldn't because I don't have those SAT scores, but assume I'd have other things underneath the application, either an amazing story or their first generation or English is not their native tongue at home. And look what they've achieved despite hardships and they could mm -hmm. do the work. If you look at the top tier mm -hmm. schools, probably about 85 to 90 percent of the students who apply could definitely do the work at the schools. It's really mm -hmm. Does the student fit what the school is looking for? It's almost like a need, like a corp, like any corporation. We're looking for someone who is doing such and such job. We have these seven parameters and we're looking for someone who has not only those seven, but seven more that we don't really list, but we can't really quantify. Right. Or it's like, you know, you, you have a 1600 SAT score. But we're going to admit somebody with who has a 1600 SAT score and is like right. a, a division one athlete in some respect or whatever it is. Right. So right. division one has its own requirements. Uh, so that's a whole sure. there's a whole different bag of shells. But <laughs> 1600 doesn't guarantee admission or 36 on the ACT. It's great. It's an application booster. I always say to a student, I'd rather you have strong academics than strong SAT scores. Because if you have mm -hmm. strong SAT scores and you have middling average, you're not going to get in. The school's going to say, well, this, what was the student doing all these years? So this whole test optional movement has really done a couple of things. Mm -hmm. It's upped the average SAT and ACT scores dramatically for selective and even less selective schools. Because students will say, should I send my score in? So college advisors like myself, guidance counselors in the high schools, are looking at what is the mid 50% range of SAT and ACT scores and telling students rather judiciously, if you're within the 25 to 75 percentile, you should send your scores. If you're at the low end of it, let's think about it. If you're below the 25 percentile, let's not bother doing it. Right. What, and, and basically that means that uh, all the low scores are going away, which brings the average up. Right. And But here's a double-edged sword. Uh, they've done research into some of the schools with respect to acceptance rates for students who submit scores versus students who don't submit scores. And in mm -hmm. some cases, the admissibility rate for students who do submit scores is sometimes twice as high as those who do not submit scores. So it's almost mm -hmm. like damned if you do, damned if you don't. It's, it's very hard to predict what you need to do. So 
the best advice I really have is if you're in at least the 25th to 75th percentile, send your score, even if you're at the low end of that range. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, to me, it still makes sense because people like as much as maybe you might make a big change publicly and make a PR announcement and on the surface, you're test optional. I think that there is a comfort there when you see those scores and you can use it as part of the evaluation package. Right. And so it makes sense to me that those people are getting admitted a little bit more. Well, I guess it's twice as more. So it's a lot more in some cases. Is that not in some cases? It's just, it's, it's commensurate. Sometimes it's a little bit higher, but generally speaking, I think if you do have scores and they are strong scores, you do want to send them. Some schools have even said, if you don't send scores, we will either you might not be eligible for certain merit scholarships or we might require you to do another essay. So that's another kind of for lack of a better term, penalty for not submitting an SAT score. Right. So then yeah, it sounds like just talking to you right now that it, it doesn't seem like the SAT is disappearing anytime soon. No. And if you think about it. For the college board, this is a multi-billion dollar product. Same with the ACT. They're not going to let these exams just go by the way. So because it's, these companies would lose significant revenue. So mm-hmm. they're going to keep it relevant. And I think with what the SAT, the college board is doing with redesigning the SAT, making it uh, computer adaptable, making it a more flexible exam so that there is machine learning to understand how a student's trend is with respect to they're scoring this new first module, it makes the exam increasingly relevant. Um, mm-hmm. So I I don't I think what the college board is doing is wise. Yeah. And and do you want to talk about that transition at all? Or? Sure. Absolutely. So it's still in the works. There is a little bit of information out there. So the new mm-hmm. exam is really going to take place for not until the spring of 2024. It's mm-hmm. going to be a new exam. It's still not tried and true. Uh, ju- this year's sophomores or next year's juniors could still take the paper exam through the end of December. The difference between this new exam and the paper and pencil exam are twofold. First of all, uh, it's going to be a shorter exam. So it's going to be shorter by, I think, about 30 minutes or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second thing is you'll have more flexibility in terms of when you could take the test. So there won't be test centers and test dates. You could decide when you want to take the test and where you want to take the test. The College Board has some pretty strict security in place, so it's really hard to Mm -hmm. cheat on the exam. So you can't look at your notes. You can't look on the Internet. Uh, So there's no there's really no way to game the exam. I'm sure someone will find. So they're offering they're offering it from home. Is that you could could take it from home. Okay, I don't know Mm -hmm. what's going to happen yet. That's one of that's one of the models they're evolving to going forward. Uh, The way it's going to work is there are going to be two modules, two verbal modules, two math modules. The first module will determine how your second module is going to look in terms of level of difficulty. And that Mm -hmm. level of difficulty will translate into a score range. So if you have an easier second module, your scores will be lower. If you have a harder second module, your scores will be Uh, your scores will naturally be higher. The verbal on this new test is going to be a little bit different because there aren't going to be long passages. It's going to be very short passages with one question per passage. Oh, okay. That is a big difference. There's going to be a lot of vocabulary on this test also. Um, In fact, one of my colleagues put together a list of 500 words that every student should know for this new SAT exam. 
the math is going to an all calculator model, whereas the current exam had 20 no calculator questions and 38 calculator questions. There will mm -hmm. still be those grid in questions. Uh, the scope of the exam will be fairly similar in terms of part of algebra, data analysis, passport to advanced math, and additional topics in mathematics. I think they're going to get rid of the complex numbers because that was a no calculator section. You could do complex mm -hmm. numbers on the calculator and they're pretty easy to do. Uh, there are four published exams right now that the College Board has put out. So you can get an idea of what these exams will look like. They're not computer based yet. Khan Academy is going to put together materials also for students. So there'll be a lot out there. I think a lot of the test prep companies will be putting out materials as well. So I think this year is going to be a development year. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, a, a couple of things that you mentioned on this that I just want to highlight. The first is going from long reading passages to shorter reading passages. I feel like that's going to be helpful for those students that you mentioned where English is maybe not spoken in the household or where they didn't grow up with like, at, like they didn't maybe grow up in the same situation as a lot of other kids. Because just like long reading a long passage, I feel like is just harder than reading a short passage, all mm -hmm. of the things equal. I think also it's interesting because in this day and age of quick information, students are used to reading on their phone a paragraph about something as opposed to reading a 500, five 600 word treatise on something. So that's one mm -hmm. of the things we're noticing. In some respects, I don't like that because I think that a student, when they're in college level reading, they have to get used to the fact that they are going to read fairly lengthy, lengthy, fairly sophisticated pieces of reading. And this doesn't really show that level of expertise. But again, the College Board is saying, we figured out a way to test this. We've done psychometric testing on it, and it does work. So okay. I have to yeah, believe them. Oh, so yeah, we we have no choice but to believe them, right? right? We'll never get in the, in the building. But I... I am curious if you think similarly about the change to a full calculator test. I feel like it's my personal take on it is that it's kind of what the world is like anyway. Like I always thought not using calculators in school was silly because you have a calculator your the entire rest of your life, right? right. And then you just can't use it on this math test, which like obviously it's testing that whether you know the math, but it's just I I think it's interesting that the SAT is going full calculator and that it'll probably change, like you said, the makeup of the questions quite a bit. Well, it's it's funny that you that you talk about this because what I know is even with my, my strongest math students, where they're getting questions wrong is on the no calculator section because they are so used to using that calculator. I like the no calculator section because I think part of what you need to be able to do as a functioning adult in society is to be able to use mathematics and to be able to mm -hmm. estimate. You're in a restaurant. What's a 20% tip? Uh, you're at a store, 30% uh, off all sweaters. What's the price of the sweater? Uh, so those yeah. things I think are important. Um, being able, if you read a graph on in Science Times or even or Time Magazine or whatever have you, to be able to understand what are the X and Y axes mean? What does a bar graph mean? What's the interpretation of that? And you did have a fair number of questions on the no calculator having to just read information from a chart or a graph. So um, I wish there were still the no calculator, but I understand, again, given the fact that it is a computer-based exam and it is taken in the privacy of your home or in a location, to not have that control could be kind of challenging. So, Right. 
And then the the last thing I did, I, or the last thing, at least in my line of uh, current thought, is just like the, I, the taking it at home is a little surprising to me because they have a whole ecosystem set up of taking it at schools that was already right. working pretty well. And then there's like, um, we have a, a GRE exam course. You mentioned you right. also do graduate school admissions. Mm-hmm. And there's a huge problem now, or at least according to a couple people I've talked to, it's it's becoming a big deal with people staging the take-home exam, like, you know, they're taking the GRE from home, but in reality, there's, like, almost like a like a TV show production element going on, and they're getting fed all the right answers in a way that doesn't get caught. And it's apparently becoming more and more popular, and it's getting to mm. the point where certain um, certain schools are actually saying that they no longer accept GRE scores taken at home. Uh, so it's an interest, it's an, it's a thing that's developing. It, it's relatively new to me too. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see if the SAT goes with that or if they just go with a bunch of computers in the school auditorium instead of a bunch of paper tests. That's a good question. Or there'll be test centers that you go to as instead of going right. to your local high school, you can go to Prometric so-and-so, right. So such and such place and take an exam. I do know that when they did the AP exams, what they did with the software was you could not access any other part of your computer. So, um, and they're also, they could look and see where your eyes are going. So I think there are ways that you can make it somewhat foolproof, but as I said before, someone will find a way to hack the system. Yeah, I the only thing that really stops that is live proctoring, which is why right exactly survived I mean, for so long. Given the fact I'm old school, uh, I like the idea of a paper exam. You sit in a room, you take it. There's a proctor in the room. They, she says mm-hmm. five minutes left, and that's what you do. But again, I'm of a different generation, so these students are used to taking computerized exams. They're used to everything being digital, so. What the college board is doing is really keeping up with the times. Right. And and I think they also probably feel a little pressure. I felt this when I heard that they were doing an adaptive test in particular, like a little a little bit of pressure to kind of, like you said, keep the test relevant, particularly in the test optional mm-hmm. world where there is sort of a question of like, I don't know how to put this, but essentially the question is, are there people that get systemic systemic advantages in preparing for these tests? And the answer to that is certainly yes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you have all the money in the world, you have a huge advantage because you can hire tutors and everything else. Absolutely. And, you know, you can extrapolate that to any kind of wealth level, top or bottom, mm-hmm. and, and what resources they have available, right? So I think that part of this change is becoming more accommodating to everybody in a way that you don't feel as intimidated and maybe you you don't think, you know, number one, it stays relevant as a measure. And number two, you know, test optional is a little bit less relevant because the test isn't so scary. That was kind of right. how I ain't thought right, about I agree. it. But yeah. I think it for students who are not good standardized test takers or have test levels of test anxiety, the test optionality definitely kind of makes one area of the application process a lot less stressful. For mm-hmm. students who are good test takers, it get it lets them show their mettle. Right. And I think that's yeah. so so it could be a win win. Again, it, 
does heighten anxiety because if you're in a high school, let's say that you know that your friend, you and your friend are applying to school X, your friend's sending scores, you're not, are you going to say, well, will he or she get in because they've got the scores and I don't, if everything else is equal, who knows? Yep. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think those are all case by case basis, <laughs> which is the, really makes it hard, right? And there's really no transparency. So we really, uh, an admission office is really like a black box. So we don't know what's going on. We can't look and say, oh, if you have a 95 average and you have an average of 3.6 on your AP exams and you have three extracurriculars and one of them is a leadership, you have a 93% chance of getting it. There's nothing like that. So. Yeah, and they would never do that either because right. it opens them up to liability. So Absolutely. We'll never, that'll never exist. <laughs> right, and there's no, they're not public institutions. They're not funded by the state. So there's, unlike, let's say, the UK system, which really has to, they have to answer to the chancellor, of high, the chancellor in higher mm -hmm. education. So there is really, there's more transparency than there is here in the US system. And there's right. more consistency because they're all, they're all public universities. Right. Makes sense. Anything else you want to say on this topic? Well, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be very interesting next few years with, uh, yeah. with test optionality, with what's going to happen with the number of applications. I'm wondering if there's going to be a backlash. Uh, so my, my colleagues went to the IACA conference in November mm -hmm. earlier this month and a big discussion was mental health. And right. that's become really a big issue. And there have been articles written about how students have taken breaks from some very high-end universities. And the schools now allow the students back, despite their saying we support mental health. So there's this paradigm where schools are not walking the talk. It's, it's going to be right. interesting what happens in the next few years. I think the schools are going to have to be a little bit kind, kinder and gentler, especially with this crop of virtual learners for the last few years. And I think with the new SAT, the jury is still out. What, what I noticed when the SAT changed six years ago was that students really ran away from the SAT and went to the ACT because it was a more comfortable, more familiar exam. And students mm -hmm. gradually went back to the SAT. I think you're going to see the same thing for this year's crop of sophomores and freshmen when they go to excuse me, the essay, look at the SAT, they might say, well, not yet. Let's see. Let's see what other people think of it. And I'll wait and see. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard some people that are ACT, SAT tutors that are saying, you know, if all else is equal for you, you might as well take the ACT during the transition year because everything's kind of up in the air. Or the other advice I've heard is just like, if you're a current sophomore or, or, or rising junior and the year of 2023, you know, take the digital SAT early, or sorry, the paper SAT, take the paper SAT early and like get that done before the window closes exactly. because at least you know what it is. And sort of the, the phrase is the devil we know, right? Is better exactly. than the one we don't. Um, so yeah, nope. that's, that's what I'm hearing right now. And I'm saying the same thing to my students. My sophomores were going to say, take the take the paper SAT. We know what it's all about. We can predict it much more readily. This new exam, we it's, the jury's still out. Let somebody else try it. And you could, if we need to, we could take it when you're a senior. Let's have a few minutes, a few versions of it out 
and running and get the reaction, see what students think of it and see what the scores look like. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then um, you touched on something else that I thought was really interesting in, in your comment just now, which is on mental health. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, test test anxiety is definitely a, a piece of mental health that can get in the way of students scoring their best. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder how much the SAT's decision to go shorter has to do with that. Because it is, it's what, like 30 to 45 minutes shorter? Yeah. So four hours to like 3.30 or 3.15? Well, a decent chunk. I think they've done a few smart things. The first thing is the fact that they eliminated the essay. I think that caused a lot of stress to do forced writing in 15 minutes on a topic that students really know very little about. So I like that idea. Right. Now to go to a shorter exam where they say, okay, we have enough data from what we know about the student that we can create a score that makes sense. I think it does, it could do one of two things. It could lower the anxiety because the exam is shorter, but could raise the anxiety also because you say, oh my God, every question counts that much more because I have to worry even more about every single thing that I do, knowing that module one will predicate what happens in module two. So there might be a little- right. So. Again, it'll be interesting how students react to the exam. I think if it's a fair test and students feel comfortable with it, they've got a winner on their hands. If they don't, if students are saying, you know something, this is a horrible exam, I'm staying away from it, I'm going to tell my friends not to do it. Guidance counselors kind of telling students, go for the ACT instead of the SAT or scrap exams altogether. Uh, this could be, you know, it could be a, a, a miss for the, for the college board, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah, I think I I feel like the college board's generally been pretty good. So yeah, I think I'm they, not expecting them to totally miss, but no, I, I think could be bumpy. The, I think they missed with the 2400. That I will say. Um, yeah, but I would say generally speaking, they've they've really hit the mark. And look, they put a lot of money into research and development. So my feeling is they weren't. They're not going to roll out an inferior product. So oh, it's, yeah. it's done. A, they've done a lot of research. They've done a lot of testing. The questions go through a lot of iterations. They make sure the wording is just right. So I'm, I'll be honest with you. I think in the long haul, it will be a good exam, or at least I'm optimistic about it. Yeah. And I think the adaptive part is interesting with regards to kind of even like the, the anxiety aspect, right? Because right. essentially... If you do well on the first section, then you get harder problems, but then you know you're in the harder section. But if you do poorly on the first section, you get easier problems, but then you know that you're in the easier section. Well, but if right? you're a student who so, is not a strong math student, you you might not even know. Or you know, okay, I know I'm not a strong math student. I know where I am right now. I know if you've done enough practice testing, you know where you're at and you know what your expectations should be. We do a lot of mock testing in our office. So by the time Mm -hmm. a student walks out of our office, we could say pretty reasonably, a student should be between X and Y scores. I'd say 90% of the time students are between X and Y. We have some a little bit above the Y, some a little bit below the X, but generally speaking, there is consistency. Right. Yeah, so make sure you're doing your practice exams. Do your practice. Anyone listening. Do your homework, exactly. Do your practice, do your homework brush up on skills, get support. If if support is an issue, use Khan Academy, use the practice exam. So mm-hmm. there's a lot out there. Uh, get a book. Uh, really, there's definitely ways to do this. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, great. Any other any other things you want to cover on this topic? I think I'm good. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Really appreciated it. Okay. This is this has been Shift, a college admissions podcast for a changing world, hosted by Tyler from Achievable with Alan Shepton from Shepton Tutoring. You can try Achievable's ACT course for free at achievable.me and use the code podcast to get 10% off at checkout.